Can you be quiet, please? Welcome to the Circular Economy Playbook, a podcast all about our tricky relationship with stuff and how to fix it. Hello, um, welcome to the podcast. I'm here, um, I say here, I'm in my house uh, with Wayne, who is not in my house. Um, <laughs> Wayne, our, Wayne, our chief executive. Hello. Production values have shot up. Yeah. <laughs> again, again, yet again. Yet again. It just gets better and better. Um, so Wayne has got like a fancy pants mic at home and I've got, I've also got a fancy pants mic that I haven't quite worked out how to use yet. So I'm using the normal mic. Well, um, all that means is they, the production values can only continue to get better. Exactly. We're nothing if not professional. <laughs> um, anyway, hello. It's, this is our first episode since lockdown. Um, for all sorts of reasons, which the first of which is uh, we just we hadn't thought it would go on this long, did we really? And, no, uh, and um, we we didn't really understand how we were going to do it in different places. But we've got an, a lovely new producer, Lucy, who is yeah. going to who sorted that out for us. So um, again, it can only get better from <laughs> yeah. this point on. Hooray! This episode is our repair episode. Some of you will know that we have been running this week our first ever London Repair Week, um, run from the 12th to 17th of October. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it started as a, it just started as a kind of a casual throwaway line that I think I said something to Wayne about, oh, it'd be nice to have a repair week, wouldn't he? And he said, yes, okay, can you do that? So our London Recycles campaign has set it up and we are running it and there's been quite an astonishing amount of interest if I'm honest I don't think we were quite expecting it we thought that we would start small um, and have a few people getting involved and run a few well at the time before lockdown we thought it would be a few repair workshops and maybe a little bit of social media chat and actually it's turned into something much bigger despite the fact that nobody can get together in a room and repair things together so yeah what do you think that's about the fact that there's been so much interest in it Wayne is it to do with the fact that we're in lockdown do you think I think there's a number of things actually. I think I think it's a bit zeitgeisty because of things like um, the repair shop, you know, the success of that. Um, I, I also think um, that we have um, like a massive opportunity to to kind of build back better, and so there's a lot of talk now about a green recovery and um, uh, repair is kind of part of that because you know we can teach new skills like you know bike repair or whatever so um i think repair is part of uh of our response to to covid so um a lot of uh, there's going to be a lot of i think investment in teaching new skills and teaching you know repair skills so i think that's part of it and um i also think people are just more kind of uh concerned now about their impact and starting to think more about their impact and are are wanting and demanding resources to enable them to reduce their impact and part of that is to repair more stuff yeah it feels like quite a disruptive act doesn't it repair so the the current linear system is built on this idea as we as we say in pretty much every episode of you know make take use and dispose um yeah whereas repair is about keeping things going for as long as possible and and um you know, there's always whenever we talk about repair, people talk about, you know, the fact that quite a few businesses may not want you to repair their stuff that they, you know, there's this idea of planned obsolescence and repair flies in the face of it. 
if you look on the internet about planned obsolescence, th- there's all kinds of stuff on there. You know, whether whether or not this is intentional, um, and in many ways, of course, uh, marketing is a way of making your old product obsolescent, isn't it? By saying you want something newer or yeah. better. You know, in in in, and and clothing, you know, fashion, if you like, is kind of planned obsolescence by making your you know i don't even know what the latest fashion is but you know your flared jeans are not fashionable anymore so you need to buy them you know boot cut or whatever yeah yeah so um but that's fashion for you fashion fashion has planned obsolescence built into built in on a weekly basis these days well so so, you know so so there's there's that kind of stuff so if you repair things or you know you you adapt them so you you take your flares in to (laughs) yeah carry on with the flare analogy you are subverting the linear model aren't you you know you're you are you are part of that uh uh, uh you're you're making your protest yeah <laughs> against linearity yeah is that a word linearity yeah no linear, linear, linearness i know i don't know what the right word is yeah. there but yes no anyway, i but, yeah completely yeah. it is about it's it, it can it can in some ways be a bit of a protest and there's this uh, in some ways has a kind of a that mad max feel about it that kind of hacking and remaking and repairing stuff and just keeping it going for as long as possible but well there's... there is that you know there is that there's the kind of steampunk stuff there's the you know there's a there's a very kind of traditional you know wartime make do amend kind of approach as well but also um uh, there's there's just very good reasons like you know there's stuff that you own that you will repair and it's, you've always repaired it and you don't even think about it like I don't know your bike mm. or you repaint your house or uh, and, and in fact DIY is a relatively new phenomena some some elements of repair have become more mainstream than others you know we don't tend to repair our clothes anymore as clothes have become you know despicably more disposable we we you know repairing of clothes has fallen out of uh of of the kind of common um knowledge set hasn't it yeah it has although you know it has its little peaks and troughs and little flurries of you know being stylish in it on the tube and things like that so we're going to talk to you know some people who who do all of that repair for you and we're going to talk to people who who democratize information in order to enable you to repair yeah so one of the things to mention is that repair is part of in terms of the business models the circular economy business models that we talk about it, it's a sort of a subset if you like of durability and 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 design for longevity that design for longevity thing it often it's thought about as just buying things which are really really high quality and often that high quality is considered to come with a high price and we talk about that a little bit more don't we later on in the episode Yes, that's right. We talk about that. Is there's a there's a, a challenge, if you like, a, a you know a mental exercise. If you imagine somebody who needs to buy clothing for their family and they've got limited means and they're presented with a cheap but affordable piece of clothing that is um, somewhat ephemeral, if you like, compared to spending a bit more for something that's more durable. What is the choice that you're going to make? Well, if you haven't got the money, if you haven't got the capacity to buy that more expensive item, there's no real choice there. Yeah. So that's the dilemma that um, we're going to examine, I guess, all the way through this this episode, and um, maybe even question the the premise: is that is that choice actually a real choice, or are there other options available to you? Yeah. So that that challenge, you know, you've got a tenner in your pocket, and there's a coat on the market stall for your kid that's going to cost a tenner, and that will fall apart in 
weeks and, a, and one that's 20 quid and that will last for a year as a result of that kind of choice being the reality for lots of people then sometimes durability longevity repair that all feels like a bit of a middle class pursuit doesn't it but and it presents durability and repair as a, a bit of a false choice because actually like price versus cost they're two different things yeah so we'll be talking a bit more about that won't we about the the true cost of items yeah we will yeah that, exactly yeah um it's a good point and and you know who who's involved in this um in the system it's citizens it's business it's government you know so all of those those actors have to um in in this scenario you know have to do something to make that choice clearly a false choice exactly so that's what we're after here we're after a a bit of an examination of uh, the current linear system uh we're going to talk a bit about the a different system that we would prefer um and some different choices which should be available to us and uh yeah Let's crack on with um, with our first interview, shall we? So our first interview, so Mercedes and David, her colleague, um, Mercedes is from Meraiti. They are an outfit based, really local to me actually, um, in Islington. Basically, they take uh, broken laptops from individuals and from companies, they fix them, and then they give them away for free to people who need them. So uh, fantastic organization in all sorts of ways so let's have a listen to what they've got to say as a starter for 10. Meraiti Digital is a community interest company and is formed by three teachers. Um, one is David that is normally teaching coding with WYSIWYSI and then is Alex and myself Mercedes. Uh, we teach hardware and uh, software. Everything started because I was traveling in um, Morocco and I was seeing the need for IT equipment in Morocco. And um, then I thought, you know, maybe um, I could go to a recycling center and, um, and see if I can repair some of the computers in there. But they, they allowed me to take some computers and screens and printers. And I was amazed at how easy it was to repair most of the stuff. That was my first experience with the repairing movement if you want and um, so when I went back to London I met Alex he was putting operating systems on the hardware that I was repairing making sure we have very powerful machines that were normally considered very old so we started teaching we started teaching people that hey guys you could do it yourself as well you know this is not difficult at all and um, we met David um, when the lockdown started. Um, when the lockdown started, we had Malme Community Center. They were amazing. And um, you know they were saying, look, you can have a room here because we're gonna be close to the public. So you're welcome to have a room. And we wanted to be repairing and giving away computers. And um, David came along. Um, I'm David. Um, the last maybe five years, um, I've been running a small charity called Diverse Digital. We have been running coding clubs called the WYSIWYSI coding clubs in um, libraries, community centres um, in North London. And we had a very large number of laptops which were just sitting unused. Um, and those laptops were kind of approaching the end of their kind of useful life to us. And it was, it was really luck that um, I got put in contact with Mercedes and Alex. I brought all the laptops there and we just kind of got together and we set up just a production line of, you know, fixing them and installing operating systems and then getting them out to people. And, and since then, we decided to kind of continue that, seeing what we can do 
you know, after, after coronavirus. So we've given away about 200. A lot of them have gone to school, but we have provided about 100 or 70 of them to just the small organizations and the users. So it's Lean to Mind, um, you know, youth clubs from Candem and Hackney. We had a lot of support as well from East Linton Giving, putting us in touch with different organizations. Do you have a, a background in, in IT and repair? Myself, uh, no, I'm more of an enthusiast. And one day my computer didn't switch on and I thought, mm, I don't know anything about the hardware. And that's when I started starting a bit it's more of a self-taught. I noticed on your website that you specified that um, you didn't provide laptops to people who are running loan schemes or rental schemes um, and that users must take ownership of their computers. Why is that? Um, we want to kind of foster a different relationship with, with the hardware. You know, we want people to, to modify their laptops. We want them to personalise them. And we want them to, you know, install different operating systems on them and, you know, take some risks and yeah. and yeah you really you have to own your computer if you're going to do that kind of thing that's a really interesting view because we talk a lot about um different models of ownership in you know in circular economy models so instead of owning stuff buying something using it chucking it away at the end of its life or perceived end of its life we talk about leasing and sharing and servitization like products or services and things like that it's kind of there's a punk aesthetic there isn't there <laughs> a bit of a steampunk thing going on when you when you buy something you you have no idea how repairable it is at the point at which you purchase it so there's nothing on um the, the packaging that that tells you how repairable it is so you know i guess infamously um apple products used to be i'm not sure they they still are but used to be like using different uh, specialist screws and if you open the back you'd invalidate the warranty and all that kind of stuff and i, I guess is that still an issue for for people who want to embark upon repairing their own IT? You've made very good points differently. I mean, one is at the point that when you buy something new, you really don't know what you're buying. I've got that. I don't have a television and I want to buy one now. And I'm worrying about the settings. I just want to be able to, dis to disable Wi-Fi or to disable the microphone. And there is no information whatsoever on what is going to allow me to do that. You know, so it is a, that is a very good point on, you know, maybe rent, if there was a renting scheme for that, I would definitely go for it until I know what I want. And then another thing that you mentioned as well is the power of the sticker. Uh, you know, you, most computers, you can't have a computer that is 10 year old and it has a, a, a sticker that says guarantee void if open. You know, your computer doesn't have a guarantee anymore. You know, it's too old you're still scared of breaking that sticker so i think it's a small tricks that manufacturers have to to stop people from actually you know breaking them so they can sell more yeah i think that's um it's definitely a theme coming out of a lot of our conversations around this repair uh, being seen I, I think we've talked about repair being a bit of a revolutionary act so we've been we've done a survey recently of londoners um across a whole range of age groups and we were really surprised by the fact that um so the 18 to 24 year old age range the gen z londoners they just seemed more engaged with repairing other than other age groups and much more confident and they uh, significantly more of that age group said that they'd repaired something in the last year compared to the over 55s and it really took us by surprise i don't think we have this assumption that older people have repair skills and younger people don't 
and that younger yeah. people are some kind of disposable generation. So are young people repairing more now, do you think? Um, I think, uh, I think, yeah, definitely. I think that generation has brought up with the devices, you know, so they're more used to them, not like us. I think another important point as well is that they tend to have their first device tends to be second hand just because the parents normally are moving on from their mobile or the tablet or whatever it is and they give it to the kids. What they are amazed at the end of our courses is that they realize how transferable the skills are. Once you've learned how to fix a computer it's very transferable with fixing a mobile or a tablet and then again they know YouTube is there. That's an interesting observation because um, I was reading something about um, uh, repairing textiles, repairing clothes. This, our, our perception is that people used to repair stuff before the war and during the war because stuff was rare, it was expensive, so they invested in repairing. And yet the knowledge contained was either passed down or contained in, in books that were not as profligate as, you know, iFixit, YouTube or the internet. So we have a new generation potentially of repairers, and this is what our research is showing us, who are interacting with um, social media in a way that expertise has kind of been democratised. Um, I definitely think that the new generations are having a different attitude, and I see that as well from my son. I mean, possibly he's not a good example because he's my son. <laughs> you know, he lives in a house where you know, we have that attitude. Maybe that that kind of baby boom generation, like my parents, maybe they're the you know they're the, the 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 lost generation to repair, and maybe like the the people before were very much into repair, and the people after are going to be into repair. But this kind of lost generation who just didn't repair anything. I uh, think, I think um, for for my generation, for example, I myself used to see a computer as something magical something very strange you know and the same happens with a lot of gadgets and electro uh, uh, you know electronics and when we teach adults you know a lot of the adults at the end they say wow thanks for breaking up the magic and make it logical and and i think for a lot of us um technology was uh, very very quick the advances in technology and we couldn't really catch up mm -hmm. we could learn the settings and things but not catch up to realize is a lot simpler than what it looks. Moving to, to, to repairing other stuff, most people, I think, maybe this is a massive generalization, but in terms of repair, most people kind of, they do a bit of bike repair. So th there is a repair culture out there and it's, you know, things like the bike or maybe a bit of stuff around the house. I think the, the IT thing is amazing because, you know, from my perspective, there's a, there's a world of difference between tightening my brakes and like, opening up my laptop how would you give me someone like me the confidence to kind of open up my laptop what's really cool about you know very kind of recent laptops is that um for the last few years we've had really good um, processes in a, in a lot of laptops and uh, you know laptops which are only a few years old just need like an ssd drive and you know you, you max out the ram then they're great machines you know there's no need to throw them away so quickly yeah exactly that's that's another thing we try to promote try to understand what your needs are so you can buy something that is suitable for you or even just get something that is suitable and obviously we tend to think if it's expensive if it's more expensive it's going to be better yeah and that's 
lack of knowledge. Just in, in both of your opinions, what, what, what gets in the way of us in the UK and in London in particular having a repair culture? What stops us from, from being a repairing city and what gives you cause for hope right now? It's, I, it's a tricky question. Um, I mean, for, from our you know, point of view, which is with you know, computer equipment, then I would say you know, the, the, the companies that make the computers probably get in the way uh, somewhat. I don't, I'm not sure if they really want us to be repairing them. Yeah, there's things such as the, the EU right to repair bill coming in, which, which would you know, force companies to provide spare parts for 10 years. Um, and and that, that would really help, you know, it would help us. Um, but, you know, outside of that, I'm not sure, maybe things are just too cheap. Uh, we, we found it very, very difficult to get funding. Uh, a lot of the organizations uh, that we work with are getting funding to buy new, but we are not getting funding to refurbish the equipment, to give it away for free. So yeah, I think a lot of uh, policy making needs to change. And um, I think the culture amongst the, the individuals is gonna be easier to change than you know, any policy making or companies changing and providing parts and providing uh, rep um, instructions on repair and things like that. Okay, so you'd see the hope is coming from, from citizens but because yeah. we, we say as an organisation, we work with citizens, we work with business and we work with policymakers. And it sounds as though you're saying citizens are the cause for hope. Businesses and policymakers are getting in the way. I would say so from my perspective. But as I'm saying, all this policymaking was something new to me. Good. So we've got these quick fire questions. I'll start with Mercedes. Uh, what's the oldest thing you own and how's it survived this long? A book that I was given from my grandfather and it's falling apart but it's still, still with me. So sentimental value has kept it, yeah. kept it together. Yes. Uh, what was the last thing that you mended? Ah, that's my flat count falling apart. <laughs> Your whole flat. <laughs> no, there's supposed to be a computer. What item of stuff would you never ever rent or share or borrow? A toothbrush. Toothbrush, yeah, fair enough. Right, David, same question. So what's the oldest thing you own and how's it survived this long? The first thing that comes to mind is I have a very rusty old motorbike in my garage. Um, that's survived this long, maybe because it's not a very good motorbike and so not many people used it. Um, and now it's just wow. kept in a garage. Uh, uh, what's the last thing that you mended? I'm fixing something right now. Um, like I have a, this laptop, they had, there was, it was rattling and I think maybe one of the plastic tabs broke off inside. So I'm literally mid-repair. Pretty cool. How many people are we going to ask that question to are actually repairing as they speak, as they answer the question? Mid-repair. Exactly. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> and what item of stuff would you never, ever rent or share or borrow? A toothbrush is a really good answer. <laughs> I don't know, maybe underwear. I can't think of anything else. I think we're just, we're just asking for items of personal <laughs> hygiene to be... Yeah. That's the answer to that question, isn't it? Yeah. It's, we'll have to say... Answer that question, but don't include items of personal hygiene. Yeah, that otherwise we're just going to get yeah. pants and pants. toothbrushes. So they were, they're a very interesting little organisation, aren't they, Wayne? And I really like the fact that her oldest item was a book. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, I think, uh, and I, and I, and I kind of mentioned this to Kyle that, 
um you know why do we why do we invest why do we have stuff that we make last a long time why do we repair stuff it's usually because i think it's got sentimental value or it's got you know inherent economic value or a combination of the two yeah absolutely and uh, you know i've got a few bits and pieces like that that i've inherited and unfortunately some of them have fallen to pieces i had a some beautiful stuff that was my mother's from when she was very young clothing that has just been eaten by the moths that i've ended up not even being able to repair but i've got a, quite a few things that i have repaired okay well i mean I, it, I just to say i mean the 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 cachet of repair has gone up hasn't it and you know we yeah. mentioned that early on in in the episode but things like the repair shop for example, which I was meant to look up how many millions of people view that show, but millions do. Primarily, mm. they're, they're getting stuff repaired that has significant sentimental value to them. Yeah, and I, I'm proof that there are still people out there doing these things. So Mercedes from MerIT, was, uh, I noticed that she said she was self-taught predominantly. So um, a very impressive kind of approach to she just kind of mucked in didn't she she just found this she just wanted to repair a laptop and she just got on with it she just opened it up and had a poke around yeah amazing um, the confidence to do that and uh and then she obviously has a she's got technical chops I guess, yes you know. technical chops i love that phrase <laughs> and it's hyper local that's what i love about this it's almost street level stuff they're doing and the, yeah. I mean, obviously there's a cost to this right i mean um it, the, the 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 people who get or the organisations who get the computer equipment may not be paying for it, but somebody's paying, somebody's funding Merit to do this. And I, what did she say? It was about ninety quid. Yeah. Per ninety quid per laptop. That's amazing. Yes. This is stuff that would have gone to waste. It costs you ninety quid to re, you know, repair it and get it back into circulation at mm. its highest value. Importantly, it's not being smashed up and bits of plastic and metal are being extracted and reprocessed something else it's being repaired and then yeah. reused fantastic absolutely local repair heroes love them um the next people we spoke to um are n- not exactly the opposite end of the scale but definitely the flip side of that which is the um we spoke to nudie jeans a swedish jeans company who um provide a repair or replace guarantee on every pair of jeans that you buy from them so, yeah, let's have a listen to what Sandja from Nudie had got to say about repair and what it means to them as an organisation. Okay, so, hi, uh, my name is Sandja Lang. I work as the sustainability manager at uh, Nudies. We are a Swedish denim brand. We were founded in uh, 2001 in Gothenburg, so almost 20 years ago now, uh, on the west coast of Sweden. And we are selling uh, mostly jeans, but also other products like T-shirts, shirts, jackets, uh, knitted items and underwear. I should, uh, full disclosure, I am wearing a pair of nudie jeans as we speak. Oh, okay. He's very fond of his nudie jeans. So, Sandy, your vision says you want to be the world's most sustainable denim company. And I was just wondering, uh, so repair obviously is part of that, but was it always part of that or did it become part of that at, at some point? And, and how is it integral to the brand? Uh, well, the repairs, I think, became official in um, 2013 when we opened up the first repair shop, as we call it, in, in Soho, London. The repair shop is basically um, a store <laughs> where we sell our jeans and our products, but it's also a repair station that is very 
much in the center of the store. How many repair shops have you got? Uh, we have about 35 stores worldwide. Uh, not all of them are run by ourselves, but uh, all of them looks like a Nudian's uh, repair shop. And what kind of volumes do you get back in through them? Uh, well, last year we repaired more than 63,000 pairs uh, globally, so it's quite a lot. Um, yeah, and it of course differs between the different uh, stores. The one in, in London, for example, are normally quite uh, busy with the repairs as well as in Sweden and other uh, countries like Amsterdam and, uh, and uh, Australia. Do you, um, do you have any uh, kind of idea how old some of your jeans are out there? Um, I guess most of them are maybe um, like a few years old, five years old maybe, or something like that. This is just my guess. Uh, but of course, occasionally we get in uh, older pairs as well, because you can also hand them in and get a discount on a new pair. And... Um, with those um, jeans that we got uh, get in with the, with the trade-in program, um, we either repair them and uh, sell them again in our reuse uh, rack, or we uh, save them for recycling project, uh, programs that we have as well. I should tell you that I am aiming to, uh, to own the world's oldest pair of nudie jeans. That is my ambition. <laughs> oh, that's great. I don't, know, I, don't know, I don't know how you would track it. <laughs> little actually. scanner in them, in the pockets. So into the scene. You do, you've built sustainability into all sorts of elements of your business. I, I noticed that you do sustainability in the very broadest sense, including the ethical treatment and payment of workers all through the supply chain and using uh, post-consumer recycled content and all of that kind of thing. So where, where does repair sit in all of that in terms of, I suppose, in terms of overall impact, environmental impact, if you're measuring carbon impacts, for instance, but where does it sit in the sense of you as a company? Is it, is it, is it at the heart of your sustainability efforts? Is it just one of many? Is it, you know, what's its, what's its position for you? Our whole idea, I would say, is to take responsibility for all our impacts along the value chain, from the cotton fields throughout the production of the garments and, uh, and also onwards to the user phase, where the repair is a central part of uh, yeah, prolonging the life of the garments. So uh, I would say that definitely the repair service is something that is really integrated in our business model today. Uh, and it's sort of affecting everything we do in the stores. In terms of the impact, like for you mentioned the carbon emissions, for example, when we have mapped this, we, we found out that, of course, the, the biggest um, impact we have and the biggest emission is in the, in the production of raw material and fabrics. So the use of phase and the repairs are, um, of course, also something that we could um, sort of lower the impact of our garments and by prolonging the life of the, of the products. Um, but um, today, uh, according to the science-based targets that we're not um, that we're following, but not really <laughs> working with yet, um, the repairs and and the, and reuse, for example, of, of the jeans is uh, not really possible to calculate into that yet. So this is still something that we uh, need to work on. But presumably, the fact that you know that you're going to have to repair stuff means that you design them in a way which m- makes them more repairable. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, denim is, of course, a very uh, good product in that way. <laughs> um, so in, in, in one way, we do have uh, a product range that is really suitable for repairing. Um, so far, we didn't repair so many other products, but this is something that we have been thinking about to do. Um, and let's see for the future what we can do. Um, but for the denim, of course, um, when you design a pair of jeans, it's uh, we think, at least in our minds, that the the denim becomes more beautiful um, by the time and by aging. So repairing is definitely a very aesthetical part of that. 
Um, so you, you said that um, London was quite busy, the repair shop, which I've I've cycled past a few times and do find myself stopping occasionally and looking in the window and wondering if I'm going to go in and buy a pair of jeans. I will at some point, very soon. Who's going in there? Who's coming in for repairs? Because we, we've recently done... So we're about to run this repair week in London, which is the first time we've ever done it. And we've done a survey of Londoners across all the age ranges. And we've been a bit surprised by some of the results around ages. So we were assuming that older people would be would know how to repair, would be repairing more stuff. And as they got younger, there's this kind of story that repair skills are being lost. But we found that younger people are, are actually repairing far more than we expected. And in fact, they're repairing more things, or they claim they're repairing more things than over 55s, um, which is really, really interesting. So that 18 to 24-year-old age group. So I'm interested in what your typical customer is that comes into the shop to get something repaired do you have any picture of that um normally we have like customers who are maybe 25 to 45 and like the, but of course older and, and younger as well mostly men um because from the very start we were a unisex brand now we also have some female uh, products so um there's a lot of women also repairing and, and using our service um i think um the people are aware of the service from the beginning might, might be the ones that are already kind of environmentally conscious people um i think also when they come into the stores anyone they will uh, soon find out about the service because they are always someone repairing there so yeah, of course, if, if they are aware about the service, uh, it's free of charge um, and you can get a sort of problem <laughs> solved. I think it's really um, uh, attractive to many people to use it. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily be have to be the targeted group um, that you talked about. Yeah. yeah, yeah, interesting. And how does the actual mechanics of the repair operation work? Do you do it yourselves? How... Exactly. So it's uh, we have the machine in, in the stores. It's... Uh, we like to have it, as I said, uh, very central in the stores, so it's not really um, sort of in the basement or not seen. <laughs> we like it to be very uh, much in the, in the center of attention as well. And um, the people repairing is, the, is our own staff in the stores. Um, so they are um, yeah, getting trained when they start Nudi- at Nudians and uh, trained how to do the Nudians repair in a, in a nice way. Um, yeah. Any tricky repairs that have ever come in that people have not been able to fix not that i have heard of no <laughs> <laughs> um which takes me on to the next question which i suppose is just a slightly more philosophical one which you know it's, it's been such a hard year for everybody and i wondered what's giving you cause for hope at the moment as a brand as an individual you know in terms of the the climate change the climate emergency we're facing hmm well, um, I think I mean this year, of course, has been a has been a, a different one for for everyone. Um, but still, I think right now we feel quite positive for the future. We have been able, for example, to keep up the repairs uh, service during the COVID times, um, and we also now feel that it's even more interested sustainable consumption. I think it's at least here in Sweden, I would say that we are coming out of the COVID time and with a slightly more positive feeling that than we thought maybe for like looking back a few months good i'm pleased to hear that well i don't think we're quite there yet here yeah so i just want to ask one more question about i'm fascinated about the business model really in the in the business case because um on on the website the jeans go up to something like 185 pounds which is i think the top 
or around the top price, which seems quite a lot to pay for a pair of jeans to me. But having said that, what I'm getting is a pair of quality jeans that are going to, it could, you know, last a lifetime. So is that really, you know, is that kind of what you're, you're trading on? Is that what makes all of this work for you? You charge a bit more up front, but you know as a consumer that, that you're getting a trusted brand who are going to give you a guaranteed repair to, to make a premium product last for your lifetime. Does that, you know, is that, is that basically the offer? Uh, yeah, pretty much so. And I would also say that it's also a lot of um, yeah, sustainability-related values uh, embedded into it. For example, that we only work with organic cotton, which is a bit more pricey than conventional cotton. Um, we do have a very transparent and um, short supply chain, which also enables us to have better control and also work with uh, any uh, non-compliances that is coming up and um, making sure that people are getting paid a fair wage, for example, and uh, so on. So I think that is, uh, of course, a lot of things embedded into into the products in that way. Okay, well, I mean, because it's in all of our interest that businesses like yours succeed and displace you know businesses that don't do that so um it's you know it's heartening to hear that it's um, well is it a success i mean i hope are you growing it are you finding that you're sustainable it looks like you're a very successful sustainable business is that yeah uh, yeah and actually um well and we have been growing <laughs> for many years um this year will not be the same of course but that's it's uh, the situation right now um but uh, we definitely um yeah have the possibility to grow for the future as well nice it's really reassuring to hear what's the oldest thing you own and how has it survived this long uh well i think if we're talking about nudians products um it would probably be one of my like human rights amnesty t-shirts that we made early on in i don't know maybe 2005 or so um and the reason that it survived so long is i guess due to the quality but also the look of it i think human rights uh, and the print of it is still very uh, relevant even today great uh what's the last thing you repaired that would probably be my kids jeans i think <laughs> they wear them a lot and tear them a lot so yeah it needs repairs quite uh, frequently are you good at repairing them Actually, I'm handing it in for at the repair store. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So, yeah. This is the I'm using the service myself. Yeah. Mm. What item of stuff which is not a toothbrush or a pair of pants <laughs> would you never would you never ever rent or share or borrow? When I saw this question, I I, um, I was um, thinking about it, and I was kind of imagining almost everything could be rented or shared or borrowed. Um, maybe except for the f- things that you now mention. <laughs> um, so I don't have so many limits actually for that. I think I can, uh, yeah, probably share most things. Yeah. Brilliant. Communitarian. Lovely. So that's that's brand loyalty and employer loyalty for you, isn't it? That when your oldest item is um, a pair of jeans from your own organisation. So that's kind of you know she's a perfect brand ambassador, Sandra. Yeah, but I mean they've got a they've got a great they've got a great offer. They have, they? they have. Yeah, I mean it's an amazing model. It's like you know you you pay up front, you you buy something new from them, and then they promise to fix it or replace it if it's unfixable for the rest of for the rest of the your life effectively 
Um, you've got a pair of nudie jeans, haven't you, Wayne? I have. Yes, I have got a pair of nudie jeans, uh, and and very good they are too. Um, this is a you know a real kind of. Um, I, I was going to use the word premium, but you know I, I kind of want to challenge myself on that because this is you know that th- they 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 are moderately expensive to quite expensive and um the fact is that's what jeans cost yeah. isn't it yeah when you when you factor I mean, in all the costs yeah when you when you when you pay people properly and you don't kind of pollute the planet that's what they cost yeah, yeah. and you it, it makes it you know you pay up front but what you're paying for is a is a lifetime of easy repairs that you don't have to worry about as a consumer you can just it's made easy for you. You don't have to worry about getting the skills, about having the equipment to make the repairs. Someone else does it for you, and you've already you prepaid it. It's all on account from that point on. Now, now, but you know, we, we go back to the kind of the market store where you, you, do you have the money to upfront to buy those jeans, and what are your what are your choices? And you know, that's the really difficult situation, isn't it? But. Who are we speaking to? We next? are speaking to Kyle from iFixit next, who's a, a a bit of a a bit of a repair god. Well, yeah, let's let's see what Kyle has to say about um, some of these challenges, and maybe we'll come back to the market store challenge um, uh, after we've heard Kyle. But you know, w- when I first started down the learning about the circular economy, and um, and Elwood was was going on this journey, I went on a Ella MacArthur Foundation uh, workshop. And they had Kyle for my fix it. This was like five years ago, and um, I was completely blown away. I, I don't. I've, I mean, I don't know if people have been on the website, but these guys. We talked about the kind of the democratization of of information, and um, uh, you know the, the 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 role of the expert is, I guess, in the twenty first century, somewhat diminished because a lot of expertise is on the website. And on the internet and available through YouTube. Well, iFixit are kind of one of those people who have democratized and disrupted in a way by putting uh, teardowns of products uh, on 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 their website on YouTube. So you could fix your own, you know, whatever it is, um, computer or, or smartphone. Yeah. And when you mention I fix it to anybody who is hacking or repairing or doing anything like that in out in the world, they're yeah, little forelock tugging moments uh, you encounter. Yeah. yeah. And we spoke to Kyle, one of the founders. Incredible. So, yeah, let's uh, hear from him. I'm Kyle Weens and I run iFixit, the free online repair guide for everything. Our goal is to teach everyone how to fix all the stuff they own. What a brilliant goal. Very clear. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I wanted to start by asking you a question about um, about why iFixit came about. How did it come about in the first place? Was there something specific that prompted you to, to set it up? Yeah, when I was studying at university, I had a uh, laptop that I had, I had worked during high school to earn enough money to buy. And it was like my certainly my most expensive possession. And I dropped it off my bed onto the power plug, and it was uh, the power plug was just a little bit loose. And it was if I wiggled it, it would work. And so it was clear that it was just a loose connection inside. And so I, I figured, well, I'll take it apart, and I'll be able to fix a loose connection. So I started trying to take it apart, and I realized that it was complicated. Uh, and so I looked online. I said, there has to be a service manual online somewhere for this thing where they show you step-by-step how to get inside. And I could not find one. 
And so I muddled through the repair and I eventually got it to work, but it was a very challenging process. It was not an easy computer at all to work on. I said, this is, this is crazy. So I decided to uh, create my own and put it online. Later, I did some research and I learned that the reason that the service manual for that uh, Apple laptop was not online was because Apple's lawyers had sent legal threats to everyone that had published service manuals prior to that. And so it, th that really flipped my thinking of realizing that the state that we're in where we don't have access to the information on how to fix our things, that's not natural. That's not the way that things ought to be. It's that way because lawyers are making it that way. I'm, I'm sure I've, I've heard that story before about the lawyers, but it, every time it just startles me. It's astonishing. I mean, the, the uh, almost sort of crassness of, of, you know, reaching into people's lives and taking away their freedom to do what they want with their things. In terms of repair and how you think of it, so you you think you said that it's not a natural state of being um, not to be able to repair, but do you think repair is something more than just natural? Do you think it might be a revolutionary act? Because some of the stuff on your website seemed to suggest that it was quite, you had quite a revolutionary manifesto about it. Well, I really think that the knowledge of how to maintain our things uh, is fundamental. Um, if, if we are you know, living in a world with all of these complex, amazing gizmos that we have, we should, we should have uh, the, the power, the, the flexibility to be able to take care of them. Uh, if even if it's something as simple as a kettle, you know, no one wants to buy a new kettle every five years. Like if I buy a kettle, it ought to last for 30 or 50 years. Like why, why would that be something that wears out? Uh, same thing, you know, with some of these more complicated devices. If you have an espresso machine, find me a local espresso machine repair person. Like they don't really exist. Right. But it's a very complex, expensive product. And so if I have spent you know, 300 pounds on an espresso machine. I don't want to buy a new one every three years. I want to, you know, take it apart, maybe clean it. Oftentimes when espresso machines, you know, quote unquote break, they're not actually broken. There's just a line clogged. I'm a cyclist and in cycling, there's an expression, cheap, durable, light, pick any two, right? And um, I, I've got this theory that um, in order to make stuff, makers want to repair stuff, the, the, the thing has to be affordable, durable, and repairable, but not cheap. So if it's, if it's kind of, it falls into the cheap bracket and it's affordable and it's repairable and, and durable, then there's an incentive to kind of not bother repairing it because you can just buy a new one. So, but if it's too expensive, then that seems to be kind of not very democratic and... Uh, you know, there's a there's an equity issue there. So somewhere on that spectrum, there's a sweet spot of affordable, but not too cheap and not too expensive, durable and repairable. Is that I mean, did, what do you think about that as a as a kind of philosophy, if you like? Yeah, the, the most affordable products are always going to be the used ones. Right. If you want if you want if we want to achieve uh, equity and getting people access to, to products that they couldn't otherwise afford, uh, perhaps we shouldn't be trying to reduce the price of it new. We should be looking at, at used products. Uh, so let's let's use an iPhone as an example. Uh, if you if you take an iPhone four, which maybe many of us have owned an iPhone four in the past, probably no one uh, listening to this is using an iPhone four right now. Um, iPhone fours, uh, yeah, that was introduced uh, uh, ten years ago, just about exactly ten years ago. They are still worth about thirty pounds. Uh, if you have an iPhone four that works, someone will pay you thirty pounds for it. Also, we, we have to realize that 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 thriving aftermarket for products. Let's say that you buy a smartphone and you're never going to repair it yourself. 
but the fact that people out there can repair it will increase the value that they'll pay you for that phone. And we all know that if you have a two-year-old iPhone, you can go and you can sell it uh, and, and you know, use that money to buy a new one. So that level of sort of free market economic activity really drives um, a, a circular economy. Who plays the most, the biggest role in this kind of mainstreaming of repair? Where I get most excited is getting, getting citizens, getting individuals, getting you and me fixing things, right? And of course, we all start fixing bicycles. That's probably the first thing that anyone fixes is fixing a flat tire on a bicycle. Uh, and, then, and then you work your way from there. Because I think it starts making us, making us educated consumers. You know, even like a, a bicycle tire, like you look at it and it's flat. It's not immediately obvious if you've never seen the inside of a bicycle tire that there is a tube inside. And then we work our way up and, and we start to understand more things. Uh, if a kettle fails, there is a little uh, temperature fuse uh, that usually uh, goes out and it's very straightforward to replace. Uh, and then you have, you know, your whole, you know, heavy plastic kettle. All that is is completely usable and, and, and you can hang on to it for another five years. Uh, and I think that that, that sort of that change where we start to realize and look at the things that we own differently that will cause us to buy different products because we're going to want to buy the longest lasting kettle that we can. And that will then send the signal to the corporations to make better products. Yeah, we've um, we've just done a survey um, of Londoners, about 1500 of them. Um, and we've, we've got a couple of stats here, which um, I'd be interested to hear what you think of. So um, 69% of Londoners told us that they would repair more if they knew how to. Um, so what do you think is getting in the way? generally on a even on a global scale like what what's what's stopping people from knowing how to repair i there's a built-in mental block because i'll tell you so uh i i just pulled the stat right before i uh i hopped on here in the last 30 days we had 187,000 londoners on ifixit learning how to repair things so so that the i guess that's the 31 (laughs) percent that that knows right um, so I think we just have to get the information out there that like this knowledge is on the internet. You can go on iFixit, you can go on YouTube, and you can learn how to how to do these repairs. Um, I, it's just a matter of sort of knowing where to look. And when we've surveyed people, particularly women, uh, have said, "I don't know where to look." And so I think that's the message that we need to get out there is just to tell people it's out there, it's friendly. There's repair cafes and restart parties happening. Uh, people want to help you fix your things. Uh, just just reach out and ask for help. Uh, and and the and I mean that's my job is to make sure that the internet is good at teaching you how to fix things. So you should be able to Google how do I repair anything, and I fix it should be the top result on Google with a really good step by step guide. And we're we're working very hard. You know we're not completely there yet, but we have tens of thousands of repair guides. Uh, we're adding more every day. Has like the environment changed over the period in which you've been doing this so you know you started out by saying apple notoriously kind of protective of sealing their units shut and using different screws that are non-standard or whatever it is has that has that has that moved now so that most producers are kind of accepting that they should make stuff that's repairable so let me say this. Apple was the first electronics company that had open source service manuals online for every single product that they sell. Uh, but it's because I did it for them or to them or however you want to interpret it, right? And I fix it was before we started doing everything else, we, we completely solved the Apple problem. We got online service manuals and parts for every single product that they have. And, and we have dramatically extended the lifespan of these products to the point where iPhone repair is commonplace. Of course, you're going to get an iPhone fixed. 
have the manufacturers come on board and are they designing products in such a way to enable that? Not necessarily. AirPods, for example, are completely disposable and cause problems. They're causing fires in waste management and recycling facilities. So uh, that is the same design team that makes the iPhone. The iPhone is quite repairable. The AirPods are completely disposable. Uh, so that's a message that we need to get out there and back to the manufacturers is that we need to demand responsibility. And, uh, in the case of the AirPods, that's a product that we should be boycotting. It's caused by you know thoughtless uh, uh, consumption on the part of all of us, but, but I'd say really intentional um, uh, uh, design on part of the manufacturers that should not be acceptable. The system doesn't want us to repair stuff. The, nobody, nobody wants us to repair stuff, really. Most people, most producers want us to dispose of the stuff we've got or recycle it at best and then buy more stuff. Is that changing? Uh, it depends on the products and the manufacturers. Some manufacturers really step up and stand behind their products. HP really wants their products to be serviceable. They have service manuals online for all of their laptops. Uh, you can buy parts directly from HP. Uh, they uh, design the products uh, to be serviceable. Um, so... Uh, and, and many other companies are this way. Patagonia is a clothing company that goes out of their way uh, to make their products repairable. Uh, Fairphone is a cell phone company that does the same thing. So there are companies that do this. Uh, Miele is a you know, German appliance manufacturer. They're more expensive, but you know that you're going to be able to get it fixed. Uh, so unfortunately, you know, I, I have like some examples, right? But it's not like two-thirds of the, the actors in the market are doing the right thing. Um, and, and so that's something where we have to work together. Part of it, this, I mean, I don't think it's completely the consumer's fault because if you go, uh, down to the store to buy a kettle and you're looking at it and you've got price options from 10 quid to 40 quid all the way in between, which one is going to last the longest? It's not necessarily the most expensive one, right? There's no way to know which kettle manufacturer will sell you a replacement fuse when it breaks. It doesn't say anywhere on the box. I mean, that is a really good point because the assumption is that if I buy a, you know, some kind of artisan dual-it toaster, that that's repairable. But if I go down and buy, you know, a kind of unbranded toaster from Argos, that that's not repairable. But, but like you say, who knows? That's a really good point. And I should point out dual-it, you know, UK manufacturer, they go out of their way. They have repair parts for all their products, like major thumbs up to them. So starting January 1st, France is rolling out uh, a repairability index that is required label going to be on all products. Not well, all products in certain categories, smartphones, laptops, electric lawnmowers, a few other categories. And then they're planning on expanding that from there. But that will be the first time that, that consumers anywhere in the world have had access to this information to be able to make purchasing decisions based on it. And we're, we're really excited about it. iFixit has been collaborating with manufacturers, helping them get ready for it and work on, on setting up the repair systems that you need. Because repairability, it's not just about a product being easy to take apart. You also have to have the information and the parts. It's a, it's a system. Repair requires a system to support it. You talk about repair as being a, a connector and as a war on entropy, which is from... So we talk purely, obviously, in terms of circular economy, how repair is a vital part of the circular economy. Um, but what benefits other than environmental are you, are you alluding to there? the moment that you build anything you build a new house and it immediately starts falling apart right this is the forces of nature are acting against us and so the human nature is to instill order on chaos and nature is is tearing it back down and so this is i think part of being a human is being a maker being a mender uh being a maintainer 
uh, and and probably we don't spend enough time uh, giving praise to the people and the systems that are keeping society running, right? We're always focused on what's the new thing. Well, who's maintaining the last 10 new things? <laughs> that's and so that's that's the idea behind our manifesto is is you know repair is noble. It's something that is that is important. Certainly we have more objects in our lives than ever before. And so the task in front of us is actually quite a bit harder than the task that was in front of our grandparents. The number of things in our homes and and the complexity of the things that we have is vastly greater. I, I think p- people maybe have this idea. Well, you know, the, he's a, you know those repairers. They're smart. They you know that kind of person. They they know how to do things. But you know, I couldn't be that kind of person. And it's really not that way. It's like I'll, I'll go into repair and I know nothing about it. I have some speakers here on my desk. I hadn't taken apart speakers like this before. Uh, and, and you just go in and you have to kind of figure it out as as you go, uh, because. Uh, the world is too complex for anyone to be an expert on everything that they're going to come across. That I'm pretty sure that there was a point in time when, and this is totally anecdotal, when my parents decided, or it was, it was imparted upon them that renting was considered to be a kind of less noble activity than owning. So, and that applies not just to housing, but to you know, the TV, for example. The, the culture of renting or leasing has until quite recently been, in certainly this country, kind of frowned upon as literally a low rent activity. But is that a kind of viable business model from a repair perspective? Because then isn't the the incentive to kind of make something repairable and durable or modular and then re-renting it out, you know, put back onto the producer? Yes, if you shift to a model where the the producers are in ch- are, are in charge, or someone you know centrally is in charge of of you know, distributing and, and maintaining infrastructure, uh, then it does it does move you in the direction of um, more repairable, longer lasting products. So it's it's a perfectly reasonable alternative to the own it, you know, and then it's incumbent on the on the product owner to maintain it themselves, or or you're renting something and then it's incumbent on whoever owns it. Uh, to rent it. And you, you see this like in, in laundromats, for example. Laundromats tend to have much uh, better washing machines than we do at home. <laughs> and they're more durable. They're designed to be more, more serviceable. Uh, and and uh, that's then they have they have increased usage. Right. And, and so all that to the uh, goes together. But but then you get into I mean, there, there, there's always this challenge where you sell these very inexpensive products to poor people. Uh, but they don't realize the total cost of ownership over time that, hey, you're going to buy, you know, the no brand washing machine for 150 pounds or something. And then it's only going to last three years and then you have to get a new one and it ends up being more expensive than if you could have afforded a better one to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a, a, an example of that. Like I bought a cheap washing machine, the pipe broke, the outlet pipe, and um, there was no way to replace it. There was no cheap way to replace that pipe. It was just a piece of piping, and you couldn't, without taking the whole machine apart, easily replace. I had to buy a new machine. That's ridiculous. One of the, uh, and if you look at the waste stream, you'll see this: that one of the greatest sources of waste is not necessarily the name brand products that are failing quickly. It's the off-brand products. It's these, you know, uh, uh, retailer label products that are imported direct from China. There is no supply chain. The retailer has no loyalty to the manufacturer. The manufacturer has no loyalty to the customer because they don't have a relationship. And so there is no part supply chain. Pondering about this sweet spot between, like, you know, Mealy 
and unbranded that somewhere there's an affordable but durable and repairable alternative that would meet you know if you could say well the lifetime the lifetime the lifetime cost of you buying x number of washing machines versus buying this one and having it repaired and it lasting 20 years you'll save money you know so that is that is it's kind of finding that sweet spot to make it you know more democratic and equitable without because at one end you've got you know, you see this in the clothing industry where you'll have haute couture saying, buy one really expensive piece of clothing and never buy anything again. But that's just not realistic. So you've got to, pre- you know, you've got to present a kind of realistic option. But I, I do love right. the cheap is not always not repairable kind of thing, or at least affordable is not always not repairable. Well, and so in in a, in a situation where we don't have a repairability index like France is working on, what I can I, the best advice that I can give people is before you're going to buy something, uh, look on the manufacturer's website for that same thing that they made five years ago, and see if they have service parts available. And if you've got a manufacturer that will sell you parts for the previous version of that thing, then they're probably going to continue doing that. Uh, but if you go on a website and you're looking at air, you know, hey, I, I'm thinking about getting AirPods. Where will I get replacement batteries from Apple? And Apple does not sell replacement AirPod batteries. Uh, then maybe that's a signal that's not a good product. So the interesting, there was a bit there in Kyle's interview, which made me prick up my ears, which was his comment about how repairable something is, um, that you can't tell how repairable it is from its price. So he was questioning that whole pricing thing. Yeah, that was really fascinating, wasn't it? That So, the, you know, we, we assume, I think it's not an unreasonable assumption that if something is expensive, it's durable and therefore repairable. But of course... Um, it doesn't necessarily follow. It might be it might be durable, but you know, do they make the parts? Do they provide the software and support? You know, and all that kind of stuff. And his point was, you just can't tell by looking at um, the price of something whether or not it's supported. That's, I mean, that's obviously when you as soon as you think about it, of course that's the case. But I'd, I'd never thought about it before, so it was fascinating to hear him saying that. Yeah, and this idea about a labelling system. I mean, as a behavioural person, that kind of makes my makes my ears prick up as well. So the the fact that the French government has had to intervene to make that happen must be... Are they the first government to intervene to make something like that happen? I'd, I think I'd, they might be. Yeah, I had no idea. But I mean, it, again, it, it kind of... It's one of those things you think, well, that's a really good idea. I think the EU are talking about it as well and um, in terms of, like, repairability labelling. Yeah, and it takes us back to the point right at the beginning of this episode doesn't it about the fact that this is a whole systems thing it's like you can't make you can't just ask people to repair things it's a whole systems approach and it has to involve government legislation as well as businesses making their items repairable and repairing them as a service and consumers learning you know the skills and and getting the kind of the the feisty can-do attitude and uh, around doing the repairs themselves as well so yeah everybody chipping in yeah, I, I um I mean you know we the, throughout this episode we've we've kind of pondered the um ethics if you like of um repairability based on the premise that we now we now know to be kind of slightly false that you have to pay more for something to be repairable okay and therefore durable. I mean there's there is obviously some truth to that. Um 
but um you know the the test is that market store where you're confronted with limited income you're confronted with the cheap item or the item that's slightly more expensive but much more durable and you just have to go for the cheap item if you can't afford the more expensive item well you know Kyle kind of said well actually there is a choice there there's a third choice that's not presented which is you can buy really good quality gear if you look around for it and, and uh, it just it does take time and extra effort and that's that's the downside as well as you know guarantees and stuff. Yeah, i mean this is the thing it's like you can if you go second hand you can do this you know live a very cheap life of luxury it requires a different attitude to buying things it does when we uh, refurbished our office I don't know, you know, do you remember we kind of, we, we had to source everything. We wanted to source as much stuff secondhand. So you couldn't look in the catalogue and say, I want 40 of those and they're all the same quality. You know, if for, our, for our, <laughs> anybody who's met anybody from Elwell, they'll notice they've got a very different phone depending upon what we could source at that time from whoever it was, <laughs> Music Magpie or whatever. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, music music magpie became yeah so that's a whole other a whole other conversation about uh, yeah. music magpie another time um yeah no i think and it's the that this slow fashion or slow consumption thing i think starts to come into play there doesn't it when you start talking about that and it's about kind of reinstating a sense of value in everything that you buy because you've slowed it right down and you've started looking for exactly the right thing that you want at exactly the right price and yeah maybe that means that people who live that way and not all of us can but people who live that way will kind of re kind of reinstate those items with the emotional value that that and the economic long-term value that maybe we've lost along the way the the point i'd like to kind of get across really at the end you know towards the end of all of this is that um you know we we are sent price signals for the market and the those price signals are you know as we know are not correctly uh, accounting for the the exploitation or the, of people or the planet so so we are not paying the full cost of stuff where we are um and have for a long time been kind of putting those costs into some unknown future well now we know what the future is if we don't if we don't change and those and that price will be factored in at some point into the stuff that we buy. What we are saying is there are a load of different ways in which you can access stuff, either through um, moving from a consumer to a user or accessing um, you know, uh, better quality stuff that lasts longer or, or going in accessing better quality stuff on the second-hand market. You know? So there's, what we're saying is this isn't about wearing... Um, we're not talking about going back in time. We're not talking about the good life and we're not talking about wearing a hair shirt. We're talking about an innovation and exciting 21st century where uh, the incentives to innovate won't be around trying to sell you the next thing. It will be about trying to make the thing better and longer lasting and make your life uh, better and save the planet and be a just transition you know it, it'll be about that um, and I think that's a very positive future yeah me too me too so um, we forgot to ask Kyle uh, the standard questions um, so I thought we could answer uh, we could answer them instead <laughs> answer them instead of Kyle um, so what's the oldest thing that you own Wayne 
Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's actually, uh, although I did say I got rid of all my CDs and all my vinyl some time ago, I do actually have one box of singles. Does anybody know what a single is well, who is well, <laughs> under well, the I age obviously of 30? Do. I obviously do. Seven-inch singles. They were great. Um, I loved seven-inch yeah. singles. Yeah, some of them are not great, it has to be said, but some of them are great. And uh, when I was a kid, we lived in a pub, and so we had a jukebox. So I've got a load of old ABBA singles <laughs> from the, 19, the late 70s with the middle bit missing. Nice. So again, a lot of people will be thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Yeah, oh, they sound great. Yeah, hold on to those. I've got, um, so I've got, um, uh, I think, the oldest thing I own. There, w- there was something older that I owned, but my husband accidentally donated it to Oxfam um, some years ago. Um, but I think the oldest thing I own is a is my christening blanket from, uh, and it was my brother's christening blanket before me. So the, then it was used. So my brother's fifty four, so it's fifty four years old, um, and it's slightly moth eaten. But I've been learning to sir, haha, here we go. In the spirit of repair week, I have been learning to do visible mending and beautiful, beautiful darns. Um, over the past year and I've been repairing quite a few items at home because we do have the dreaded London moth where I live um, and uh, yeah it's um, it's an item that I've started thinking about how I'm going to darn it in the way which makes it beautiful like those Japanese broken bits of crockery that are re that are put back together with little slivers and veins of gold um, oh yeah, I've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's the kind of ethic that I have in the kind of visual uh, aesthetic that I have in mind for my baby blanket. So that's my oldest. Wonderful. Thing. Yeah. And what was it? And that was that the last thing you repaired? That's not the last thing I repaired. The last thing I repaired was a pair of socks, and it was darning. I am very much oh. a uh, needle and thread type of a person. Yeah. What about you? Well, I live in um, <clears throat> I live in uh, Hove. And a lot of Hove houses are made of this thing called bungaroosh. And um, bungaroosh is uh, rubble, basically. So um, you can be drilling into your wall and hit flint, which is basically means your drill forms a hole about a foot wide as it skates all over the place. The last thing I remended was our um, uh, coat rack, which fell off the wall. (laughs) 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 And uh, it took me about a week to drill the hole fill the hole that I drilled because it was a foot wide <laughs> and then <laughs> and then drill another hole where oh anyway so that was it yeah a labor of love good good well a labor worth doing then um but I also actually we should mention our new theme tune yeah go on you talk about it it's your love um, so it is yeah so these these guys are a German um techno EDM duo called micro trauma and um uh i love this track but the, it, it 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 just reminds me um it's called circulate by the way the track which seems appropriate uh, but it, it just reminds me of um because I, I mean i love this this music and i love playing around with techno and i like acid house and that whole scene the whole scene revolved around second hand rediscovered and repurposed repaired um electronic instruments uh, most notably the roland 303 and the roland 808 drum machines and the roland 909 drum machine which were commercial failures when they were produced um the 303 was a complete failure 
uh, and um, was found, was rediscovered in second-hand shops by musicians in Detroit who made this kind of acid house squelching noise that they completely kind of reinvented what that instrument was used for. And they probably picked them up for a, you know a couple of dollars in these second-hand shops, and now they're worth about three thousand dollars for a for an original Roland three hundred three. So, so um, I love the the track itself. Uh, I love the the title, but also there is a a lineage of uh, of reuse and repurposing throughout that kind of that that musical genre, which I find quite appealing to. Lovely, lovely. Well, we'll leave you with um, the, the serene sounds of Circulate. <laughs> um, uh, but just to say thanks for that, uh, Wayne. That was a a good romp through various aspects of repair. Um, I hope it's been interesting and inspiring for some of you to maybe pick up a hammer and a nail and do some repairing yourself or a needle and thread or or a spanner for your bike um happy london repair week and uh, i hope you get a chance to check in and have a listen to some of the events um and uh, take a look at some of our social media uh, hashtag repair week ldn if you want to post any local repair heroes or any repairs that you've made yourself um, will be good to hear from you. But until next time, see you soon. Bye. As ever, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed our podcast or have learned something new, please like, subscribe and leave us a review if you can. You can find out more about our work on social media if you look for at LWARB, L-W-A-R-B on Twitter and the London Waste and Recycling Board on LinkedIn. You can find out lots of interesting content there. Um, please give us a follow and let us know what you think. See you next time.